Hello everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show where each week my guests from Luxembourg or more internationally bring us their wisdom on a whole range of topics. And as always this week we're going to start with the wonderful Sasha Kyo, which is of course a delight for me and Sasha, if you don't already know, is uh, the weekly newsreader from The Sam Steen Show. We've also got Dr. Jackie Brassi, who is from the McKinsey Health Institute. And last but not least, I have Flavio Gianotti, who is probably, undoubtedly, the best fencer in Luxembourg. So we're going to talk about fencing and and the upcoming Olympics and training and everything therein. Now, we're going to start with you, Sasha, as always. A week's look back, a reflection of the week's news. Well... Hello. Thank you for the lovely introduction. I like being introduced as wonderful. Well, of course, of course. I (laughs) hope you're introduced like this all the time on the Sam Steen Show. If only. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, as always, I mean, it's just jam-packed. Oh, yeah, always, isn't it? Fridays come around really fast. and I'm like, oh, gosh, what, what were the main stories this week? But I guess we have to start with Ukraine again. Um, it is, is usually the top story of, of our week. So just very briefly, um, obviously, the there have been missile and air, air attacks across Ukraine all week. And there was um, a missile that uh, landed in Poland. So um, there was a very tense few hours, I think, when um, it it killed two people in a village uh, close to the Ukrainian border. Of course, Poland being a NATO country, suddenly um, there was a lot of reaction. And interestingly, the Polish government uh, called for calm straight away. They went into a meeting and then very quickly all the G20 leaders, um, well, the G7 leaders and NATO leaders who are in Bali for the G20 meeting. um, They do pick nice locations. (laughs) Yes, they do. Uh, Very quickly came out and said it was not a Russian missile. It was um, a Ukrainian air defence missile. Um, So this is disputed by Ukraine and by President Zelensky uh, saying that it was not Ukrainian, um, but they want to be part of the investigation. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very interesting. Are, are NATO pushing an agenda to, to to say that this was not a Russian missile? Because obviously that would have enormous consequences. Um, but it's almost inevitable that if you're a border country, things can slightly go awry. Actually, just on that point, I know that your husband is Polish, so I'm sure you talk about this quite a lot at home. We do, yes, absolutely. And Polish media are very often the first um, to to break these stories. So this, the, you know, we heard of it quite early on, um, before it was on, on on a lot of Western media. Well, even better that you are our newsreader, isn't that <laughs> an inside track? Well, I don't think exactly. so. I'm sure if you work for one of the agencies, you've got it and are waiting for verification. Um, yeah. But it it was. Qu- Quite a quite a tense uh, standoff, I think. Um, we still don't know the results of the investigation. And meanwhile, of course, uh, I think the Luxembourg Foreign Minister, Asselbon, nailed it by saying it was likely to have been an accident, you know, whether it's Russian or not. Um, but it wouldn't have happened if the Russians weren't bombing uh, (laughs) Ukraine and we just need to stop the war. I mean, you know, 10 million Ukrainians are without power as we speak. The the bombing of the energy infrastructure in Ukraine is absolutely disastrous because not only do people not have uh, lighting and heat, but also it's it's really affecting the water supply. Um, 
if if you can't purify water and get clean water, um, people are terribly worried about the the consequences of that. We could be see, looking at um, you know waterborne diseases coming to Ukraine. Uh, you know, it it is absolutely horrendous. It is. Um, just a side story on this link between Poland and Luxembourg and Ukraine. This week in Luxembourg, it was the Luxembourg Poland Chamber of Commerce Entrepreneurial Women's Project uh, Gala, and in fact, this year they had many many women joining them from Ukraine and it was a wonderful wonderful event uh, where these women come up with project ideas and they get training on all sorts of necessary abilities that you need if you're going to just start up your own company because we're not taught everything at school I mean you can get a lot online but it's lovely they also form a community so it was absolutely wonderful to see this very very strong link between Poland and Ukraine here in Luxembourg this week that's interesting. I think a lot of Polish people here in Luxembourg have been very involved also in um, humanitarian efforts, you know, in the initially drive, driving vans. And I see that a lot of Polish people are also uh, invested with Ukraine, uh, the uh, Ukrainian organization that's trying to raise money uh, to buy ambulances for Ukraine. Uh, for, sorry, not for Ukraine, for, for <laughs> Ukraine. Ukraine. Yes, um, yes. Which seems to me to be a, a, an amazing project. Yes. Because they, they are really short of, obviously, of ambulances, any kind of um, uh, basically uh, fire trucks, you name it. So many things and it brings me back to last week's story where we're talking about ambulances now but also on the other side entirely they need socks as you mentioned last week. So there's everything basically, you know, when you're in this situation everything is needed in different quantities. Moving stories uh, we won't spend long on this story. (laughs) Trump. Um, well, it was almost inevitable. It was almost inevitable. But I think, again, what's really interesting is Trump has nominated himself uh, to run as a Republican candidate for the next presidential elections. However, it seems that many Republicans, and especially the more uh, conservative Republicans, really don't want it after the midterm elections, which frankly were, were not a big success for the Republican Party. Uh, you know, they just about won one seat in the House of Representatives, so they can upset the Democratic uh, legislative agenda, but by, by one seat, and they lost a seat in the Senate. So it was definitely not a big success for the Republicans. Um at a time of of growing uh, living costs, you know, Americans are really feeling it. So, and quite often vote obviously against the incumbent party. Um, so it'll be very interesting. But um, from what I've been reading, don't underestimate him. No, I think we've all seen that. Yes. Yeah. So he's well, not fin. You know, <laughs> he 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 thrives on adversity and does seem to be able to reach out to exactly those Americans who don't feel represented. So, And we'll see what Elon Musk has to say because Twitter was a huge platform for Trump in the past. So we'll see which medium he'll use to voice his yes. thoughts in the future. It might not be a Twitter. Not be Twitter. <laughs> there may not be a Twitter, I feel. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Uh, only time will tell. Uh, and we have our own elections coming up here next year. So it's 60 seats here in Luxembourg. Yes, so the election date was announced for the 8th of October next year. And um, yes, 60 seats. So obviously uh, in Luxembourg you have coalition politics that no one party can, can uh, well, has, I think as far as I know, has ever won. So uh, 
if you get if a coalition bloc makes more than 31 seats, then they they will rule. Of course, we don't know whether uh, our current prime minister Bettel will definitely stand. I understand from, from what I've read is that he would like to stand, but he's waiting to be nominated by his party. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting. More foreigners will be able to vote. I mean, obviously, in the national elections, you need to have Luxembourgish passport, but many of us have taken a, a Luxembourgish passport. And we also have municipal elections next year in June, um, where, of course, foreigners can vote. Um, there is no longer a five-year rule that you need to have lived here. Um, you just need to register. But there is no link between the municipal and national elections? No, there's no link, absolutely. There's just It's, it's very unusual that both elections are happening in the same year. Yeah. And of yeah. course, what's interesting for me, as, as uh, you know, I'm a newly a Luxemburger, is that as, as with a Luxembourgish citizenship, you are obliged to vote. It is compulsory. That is a very important point here in the country. Fabulous. Yes. Yes. I don't yet have that because I need to learn the language, but <laughs> I'll get there. I'll get there one day. It's just life is very busy. Wait 20 years. I, well, <laughs> they go fast, sadly. <laughs> yeah. Now, again, Luxembourg story here, the gender pay gap. We're looking quite good here in Luxembourg. Yes. Big success story for Luxembourg. It has the low the lowest pay yes. the shake, I was trying yeah, to get it that's right, right. lowest that's or right. highest mm-hmm. so at 0.7% uh, you know we nearly have uh, equal wage parity exactly and it's way above the EU average um, which still I think is at 13% yes. isn't it so um, I mean I know that's an average of, of all these different countries but it's a big success story for Luxembourg it's great it's great and um, and wonderful to be in a place where we're valued as equals monetarily <laughs> Well, I, I I think you 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 can maybe judge a society on 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 wage parity, can't you? On how it views its women, absolutely. I yes. quite quite agree. <laughs> um, and uh, well, I suppose sort of linked to that is a different story, which is about household spending. Um, there was nothing much that stood out to me here, but linked to this story, which I think is very important and very sad, is that about one in five. Luxembourg households live below the poverty line. Yes. Um, well, it's actually Luxembourg City. Uh, I, I have to correct my my notes that uh, has this uh, one in five number. It is lower across the country, uh, but it's still 18, just over 18 percent across the country. Still near. Which is surprising. But yeah. of course, it's the it's the cost of housing, I think, in particular, yeah. that, that pushes people into poverty here. Um, there's still very little social housing. Um, you know, they, they were aiming to have 10% of rentals uh, as social housing. And I think it's still currently under 2%. So it, it is must be very difficult uh, for people who are earning below the average wage. You know, how do you how do you pay these rents? Um, yeah. But you you have this with the um, the 2021 average household spending one in four euros is on housing and related costs. Exactly. I, I think it's higher than this. Well, personally, yeah. <laughs> I, think, yes. I think it's higher for many people. Um, the housing costs are a, a very large proportion of their income. Absolutely, and I mean, I was struck how how little money actually was going on um, things like travel and and leisure. Uh, when you think after the pandemic, everyone said, you know, they're, they're all going to go out, they're going to travel across. But I don't think people have the money necessarily. Yeah. So if you're having to pay these very high bills, and um, and your know, bills have gone up in. 
Luxembourg too. I know not not in comparison to other countries. Well, we have the huge energy costs and something that's hit everybody in Luxembourg, uh, lovers of cars here, are the fuel costs. And I think pretty much everybody who likes to travel has noticed that. Yes. Yeah. So life, life is getting harder. Uh, I always feel that we have to qualify it slightly because we are still in a very happy position in Luxembourg compared to many, many countries, even in Europe. But uh, yeah, it's it's, it's definitely uh, economic news is, is top of the agenda, Absolutely. as always. Mm-hmm. And then this terribly sad story, which I think when we have all of the details fitted together in a jigsaw puzzle, will be hugely interesting, but still incredibly sad. It's uh, the Diana Santos story, the crime story. It was really sad and and very um, bizarre because, uh, you know, back in September, uh, a a body was found near the Luxembourg border in France and uh, was was very uh, soon identified to have been Diana Santos, who, who has, was had been living in Dikirch in, in the north of Luxembourg. And um, then last week, uh, body parts were found in Germany and um, they they have now confirmed that the DNA from these body parts w- were, the sa- were the same. So um, Because when her body was found in September, it was a dismembered body. It was a dismembered body. I mean, the, the details are pretty horrific and also so sad. She had only moved to Luxembourg in, in the summer and uh, was, you know, by all accounts, you know, you don't, you don't know, but it seemed to lead a very happy life. It appears that it, there was that she had m- married someone possibly for for a passport, and uh, that there was that uh, she was involved with this, uh, or got involved, or was the victim of a criminal gang who were selling passports to non-Europeans. This is all a possibility. It's still under investigation by both the German police, the Luxembourgish police, and the French police. But the details were just really sad because it's a 38-year-old woman who mm. seemed to lead a very happy life in Indikish, um, but ended up, you know... Terribly e- sad. Ended up dead. They think... Poss- I mean, there is a man who's been arrested. I don't want to say no. whether it's possibly uh, this man or not, but it could have been a partner or, or um, well, they are someone the most likely. close yeah. to her. Yeah. Usually it's um, most likely... Again, another slight side story, because I've recently moved house, I'm listening to an awful lot of audiobooks. And um, the ones that I'm currently on are a whole set of crime series by... It's a true crime. Yeah, so. well, well, actually not true no, crime. Okay. Okay. Anthony Horovitch, and then also I've moved back to Agatha Christie's, in fact. So. <laughs> but um, Much better, that true crime <laughs> podcast is, is uh, I, I started pretty on that, horrific. It's a little bit depressing, yes. so I need a bit of just fiction, fiction, but where we have wonderful characters in them. Well, now, COP27 still going on, but not so much news coming out of there at the moment. Yes, so today is officially the last day, actually. And uh, negotiators are, they're really on the nitty gritty. They are trying, um, and apparently there is a draft agenda, to that richer countries will compensate poorer countries for uh, climate change um occurrences. So, say, the floods in Pakistan would be one example. Um, but it, they're really stuck. Um, they might, the, the the talks could be extended. Apparently, there is a draft agreement in place, but uh, not, you know, n- nothing uh, signed and sealed yet. But what people were saying, I was listening to the uh, Guardian correspondent who made a pledge to put uh, 
climate change and COP27 on their front page every day during the talks. And she said it's been really difficult because um, there are no protests. There is no act. <laughs> Obviously, being in, in Egypt, there were no protests allowed. There are no activists outside the conference. So it is, you know, you, you've got the talking heads and, and you know, last week it was the big politicians making the big speeches, but this week it's the negotiators. So she said it was difficult because, of course, what gets media attention is is people throwing paint at a, at a Klimt painting in Vienna. Which or, did happen. <laughs> yes, or uh, the uh, Van Gogh painting that was... Um, uh, I can't remember what they threw at it actually, but the, the, the activists they threw something that I think, was I think tomatoes, tomato soup, tomato yeah. soup. That's yeah, what it was. That's right. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's what gets media attention, and of course, none of that is happening in Egypt. Well, that's almost good, but not great for the front page of a newspaper. <laughs> I'm glad no more paintings are being ruined because I don't personally agree with that line of uh, <laughs> protest. Yes. For me, that's really tragic. Yes, I mean, it's a sign of, I suppose, how superficial some, some you know, news media works is that that's, that's an easy one to report on, isn't it? Whereas reporting on the nitty gritty of a 30-page uh, uh, document, you know, with a lot of negotiation in it, it's less well, it, sexy, it also it? shows us because you know when that happens, we do look at it. We do. I'm afraid to say we do think. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, that's happened. That's terrible. And in fact, it does. Work. I hate to say it. It does work. But I absolutely disagree. But we're here talking about it. Here I we mean, are talking about this it. This shows it's worked, but it's really, really bad. Well, it's the same as activists, you know, stopping yes. airplanes or sitting in the middle of the street yeah. or the big protests uh, that were happening. Yeah. They're very inconvenient to people, but they, they they make great news, don't they? Well, speaking of airplanes, we've had the verdict of MH17. Yes, this must be something you're very interested in, isn't it? I mean, it was... Uh, Oh, it's such a s- terrible story. So, of course, everybody knows that the Malaysian uh, Boeing 777 that flew over um, Ukraine, now we now know the separatist parts of Ukraine in 2014, was shot down by a Russian missile, killing all nearly 300 people on board. Um, a lot of them were Dutch. So there were, I know there were some Luxembourgers on it too, people going on holiday heading for to Indonesia. I think it was Bali they were flying to, wasn't it? So... Really, really tragic. And but there's been this amazing court case. The the Dutch authorities have spent years and years putting together all the evidence. They have built a replica well not a replica, they've put parts of the plane together. They've worked out exactly the tracking of the missile, what kind of missile was used, and they have found three people guilty, obviously in absentia, uh, two Russians and a Ukrainian um g- general and they, um, of course, Moscow ha- denies it, says it's uh, this was nothing to do with them. Um, but I was interested to find out whether this brought any closure to the families because they have been the most uh, sort of vociferous in, in keeping this all going. And um, I heard one person saying, "Yes, it, it gives some comfort that that there has been guilt. That you know, the guilt has been proven. But of course, these people will never ever." presumably um, have to atone for their crimes. And and uh, there's a lot of feeling as well that maybe the West should have reacted stronger at the time because, of course, that was sort of the beginning of the war, really, because, uh, you know, that Russia had just annexed these parts of Ukraine um, and did, did what they want. And we, there was no really strong reaction like there is now to the war. And there is definitely a connection 
You know, it's just a sort of, you know, continuation, I should say, rather than connection. It's an incredibly fine line diplomatically when to say something, when not to say something, because um, because of our history here in Europe in the past. And sometimes politicians are too scared to overstep because they don't want uh, to fall into the past. But here we are today and we all know what's going on today. So... It's never easy to know in retrospect what would have happened if one was to take a different course. Yeah, yes, no, of course. But uh, it's, it just seems that maybe if there had been a stronger reaction yes. at the time, yeah. maybe we would not be in exactly this situation that we but are But it would have been very in. hard to say something back then without the eight years of evidence they have collected so clearly. Yes, of course. And now they have all the evidence and they have the facts. So now they can really say something with the proper facts behind them, whereas before it would have been hearsay, perhaps, or at least spoken about in that tone of voice. Yes, they're not proven, exactly. really. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to end on a positive. Absolutely. So the positive we're going to end on is the Christmas markets. Uh-huh. Good. They open uh, today, Friday, uh, the day we're recording. So we have got Christmas markets. It, Christmas was not cancelled. There was a lot of fear when we were doing a lot of uh, we need to save energy uh, in Luxembourg. So in fact, um, there's a the traditional Christmas market in the city. Then there is a Winter Lights Festival. So there's some the, the Place de Paris. There's the St Nicholas Market, um, and then there's another market as well. Obviously, about the Gallefra, there's the big wheel. Um, so all the lights will be LED, which saves uh, electricity. Um, the Christmas lights will only come on at 4.30 in the evenings until 11. So they've reduced it all a bit. There's no um, ice skating rink. But I think there'll still be a very nice glass of Glühwein and a nice sausage to be had. I think there is. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. And I'm so happy to see that they are here. With COVID, we did have this hiatus and it was a, rather sad. So... Yeah, we have that warm feeling of Christmas, something to look forward to for everybody. Much needed, I think, as well. Absolutely. I'm also, I've never been to the Christmas market in Metz and I was reading about it. Um, they have a gourmet uh, Christmas market, which I thought sounded quite It's nice. very nice. I've have been, you been? I was. Pre-COVID, it's lovely. They're all lovely and in different ways. And there's a lantern walk through a park or something Ooh. I read, which also sounded rather, rather nice. I was there when they had a lovely light festival around the cathedral. That was very nice. Yeah, yeah. I know there's a very famous one in Germany, which I can't remember the name of. Um, is it Heidelberg? I don't know. Some place in Germany has a lovely, love. well, they all. I mean, there's so many nice ones yes, to try. Yes, there are lots, aren't there? I mean, I love the Trier Christmas Market. I think yes, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Don't forget about Maastricht. Eh? Oh, yes. But I, that doesn't I've open until... I've but people have sold it to me many times. I've so heard... It's on my list. Yes, I've heard. That one starts on the 1st of December, I believe. That's right. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah. But uh, yes, I have been to that and I thought it was wonderful as well. Yes, oh, so lucky a tour in Luxembourg. Yeah, we, we, an RTL today, radio tour of the Christmas oh. market. <laughs> yes. That's a very nice idea. Sasha, as always, thank you. It's my pleasure. The Lisa Burke Show. And now my great delight to introduce to you Dr. Jackie Brassi, who is McKinsey's Chief Scientist and the Director of Research Science for the firm's People and Organisational Performance Practice. Also an affiliate leader of the McKinsey Health Institute with over 20 years experience as a 
practitioner, academic in leadership and organizational development and positive neuroscience in and outside of McKinsey and academia. So lovely to have you here, Jackie. Wonderful to be here, Lisa. Thank you. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the work you've done for your books, Advancing Authentic Confidence Through Emotional Flexibility. And this year, you've brought out Deliberate Calm, How to Learn and Lead in a Volatile World. Yes. And I think we all need a little bit of help. Now, before we dig into the tools available through your work, it starts and stems from your story. So do you want to take us back a little bit and tell us a little bit about your story and how you came to do this work? Yes, of course. No, it, um, the, the journey to authentic confidence uh, started about seven years ago. Um, so in the middle of my career, I experienced uh, a confidence crisis and I had no idea what that was. Um, so I tried to ignore it a bit in the beginning uh, and just crack on and, and do my work and, and try to do my best. But um, it got to a point where I felt I have to do something about it because this is not helping me. I cannot really be the person who I want to be. And uh, and that led to a journey of discovery um, and also self-care, working uh, on, on myself, developing myself, but also research. So I took it to my academic research because I really wanted to figure out what this thing was about. Um, but yeah. this hit you at a time in life where you were doing a lot. Married, moving countries, two international careers, young twins and high power jobs. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot. I, it doesn't sound extraordinary to me that there was, uh, when you say confidence crisis, I mean, a lot on your plate, basically. There was a lot going on in your life. Oh, yeah, Lisa, but there's always been a lot going on in my <laughs> life. So. <laughs> And uh, you're right. I was then uh, in the Netherlands, uh, indeed young twins. Um, they're 14 today. Back then they were uh, a little younger then, of course, but uh, still going to the primary school. Um, we landed in the Netherlands and, and I've always done multiple things. And so there's there's a kernel of truth in what you're saying. I was uh, very busy. And one of the things that was the problem was also that I was uh, working hard, uh, not taking enough care of myself, not setting myself up for success, because if you get tired, uh, this doesn't help, right? So my coping mechanism was also working harder, harder and harder. Um, and it's one of the potential reasons why I ended up where I ended up. But it was, you know, in hindsight, it was uh, a very precious uh, thing to experience, to be honest. And at what point did you choose to make that that turn in what you were doing? At what point did you stop and say, I can't do this anymore, I need to make changes? I remember that vividly because it happened actually at work in a team room where I have never been off work. I continued to work, but I kept on a mask. I just acted as if nothing was going on. And I, I remember I had a moment of looking at myself, seeing myself going into a freeze, uh, actually. And I talk about that in a TED talk, in TED uh, INSEAD talk. Um, I went into, uh, into a freeze. I could not really... So we were talking about uh, a problem, of course, as we do in, uh, in the work that we do. And I... I, I knew the answers, I just couldn't say them and I also couldn't perfectly structure my thoughts in my brain. And I thought, this is so frustrating. You know, there's so much that I want to bring to the world that if I go on like this, I cannot bring anything to the world. Um, and I want to tackle this now and forever. I can walk away from it and act as if nothing happened and go work somewhere else and, you know, go in my comfort zone. Or I face this, which is unsure uh, because I, you don't know where it leads to so it was it felt like um, a challenging thing to do 
uh, but I really deeply inside felt I have to do this and I started to talk about it as well and there was no stopping uh, um, to to do so. And when um, you started talking about it, I, I remember you saying you had a couple of different yes. polar opposite reactions, in fact. It's fascinating. Correct. You know, there were, there were a group of people that said, wow, this is uh, it's amazing because I have similar uh, challenges. And can you please continue to talk about it? Because I wish we would talk about it more. People hide it. And, uh, you know, it, it is so important that we uh, bring this to the table. But there was also a group of people that uh, wondered whether I should talk about it and asked me um, if this would not hurt my career. Um, and I remember when I when I heard that, I thought, you know, this is it. I don't care, really, if it hurts my career or not. I just have to to do something about this. And then along the way, because this is a process, it never happens in one moment, I learned that I was not alone. It's actually very omnipresent Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very normal. It's also essential in order to learn and grow and develop, to go out of your comfort zone and experience stress. And I was out of my comfort zone, but there was a lot that I added to it myself, right? There was a lot that I could do that would have uh, made it uh, less challenging for me in that time. And um, um, and so, yes, knowing that it is normal, knowing that it is uh, everywhere, but also knowing that you can do something about it uh, is very empowering. So I want yeah. to open up the question then from your first book. You talk about emotional flexibility. And I watched that INSEAD TED talk that you did. And I want you to explain to us, what do you mean by emotional flexibility in the terms that you use it? Yes, so it's basically, if I would use one simple sentence, uh, it's about becoming comfortable with discomfort. It's magical. And it's actually happening in this moment, right? I have a wonderful conversation uh, and it's fantastic uh, to be here as well. For some people, uh, doing things uh, like this can be challenging and and it can create all kinds of thoughts. So in the past, I had all kinds of thoughts that I would not be good enough or I'm not interesting or... Now, emotional flexibility is about being okay with that thought, being in the moment with it, accepting that uh, whatever comes is good. And for me, the key in the whole process was also being kind to myself, Um, self-compassion was a huge unlock, of course. You were surrounded by people, I imagine, and still are today at McKinsey. It's not known for its uh, non-alpha type personalities. <laughs> I have to tell you a little side story. I don't know if I told you this, uh, Jackie, but uh, way back in the day when they did the milk round at universities, I, I thought, well, a lot of people are going for these, um, these types of companies. So I'll go and just uh, chat to McKinsey and see what they... They told me I was too bubbly. Well, it was actually, it was worse than that. The man was very nice to me because there was two separate interviews, a man and a woman. The man was very nice to me. The woman was not so kind. And she was the one who told me I was too bubbly. So I'm too bubbly for McKinsey. Oh, Lisa, <laughs> oh, Lisa I can tell you. <laughs> I can tell you, you're good the way you are. McKinsey's full of wonderful people, honestly. You know, it's a shame. It's full of wonderful people. But they're, from what I know, for instance, they're very, very hardworking people. They push themselves very hard. And you're part of this health academy now at McKinsey. And so I can imagine, and from other friends I have in my cohort, my circle, you know, it's often the people who work the hardest end up with the burnout because they push beyond the levels of, of, of human capacity. So I can imagine at McKinsey, you know, 
the level is high and you must be surrounded by a lot of people who are reaching the edges of burnout. Listen, you know, people who work, it's not the people who work the hardest who end up in a burnout. It's the people who do not recover and take care of themselves along the way that may end up in a burnout, right? It's a complicated topic. Uh, like McKinsey and many other organizations, I've worked for Unilever before, you have professional services firms and, and the medical profession, for example. A lot is asked, the bar is high because there are serious, especially in the medical profession, serious topics on the table that uh, need attention. And, um, and yes, um, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's, for, um, it's fantastic to work in that space where, you, uh, where you, can, you can really be mentally and intellectually challenged and, and, and solve the toughest problems. But yeah, um, it's important to take care of yourself along the way as well. And, uh, and a burnout and anxiety are different things. They are related, right? They're different things. Um, but the awareness is one. And, and so tell us on that point, because I think a lot of listeners will suffer from one or the other. I've spoken to people and uh, it's, it's more common than one thing. What would be the symptoms of burnout compared to anxiety? So there can be, um, burnout is also a, a, a difficult uh, topic in itself. There are also in the medical profession, there's no agreement yet what it really is, but there are the symptoms of burnout, of really clinical burnout, can be very close to symptoms of depression, for example. Um, often there is comorbidity with anxiety. Uh, there's not 100% overlap, right? But there is uh, anxiety can also is very closely related again to insecurity. And also uh, people use the, the term imposter syndrome sometimes. And so there's a lot of overlap, but there's also a difference. Uh, anxiety doesn't need to lead to burnout, for example. You can live with it if you have the tools to live with it, right? Um, but we do find in the McKinsey Health Institute, um, uh, where I'm part of, uh, and that's, by the way, I want to explain that to people because many people have not heard of the McKinsey Health Institute. It's uh, separate from McKinsey. It's a non-fee-generating institute. Um, and our overarching aspiration is to add lives to years and years to life. And, and one area of attention is employee burnout and, and I work, I co-lead that with, uh, with other people at the McKinsey Health Institute and as you said Lisa, um, there is a lot going on in the world, yes, that's what we have found uh, one out of four employees reporting burnout symptoms, one out of three reporting distress and, um, and all the research tells us that it has uh, increased since pre-pandemic right, so there is a lot going on and what our research uh, shows us, that there is a huge responsibility for employers um, because often it's put on the shoulders of the individual mm -hmm. to take care of themselves. As I said, you know, you need to take care of, to recover, etc., etc. Yes, there's a time and place for that as well. But there is also a very important responsibility for organizations to create environments uh, where people can thrive. And, and does the McKinsey Health Institute work with organizations? We do, actually. We, uh, and, and I invite every listener to go and look at our website, uh, mckinseyhealthinstitute.com, and you can find all the information. We do, um, uh, through knowledge building, knowledge development, um, asset development, and, um, and sharing, and, and uh, bringing organizations and institutions together to actually solve wicked problems like this one, uh, we, we work, we want to work with organizations to join us on the journey to help them uh, and, uh, and to help organizations in general become enablers uh, for health and well-being for employees because there's a huge opportunity, right? We spend so much time of our life at work and we have the opportunity to contribute to the well-being of our people 
or we don't. And then that's a societal challenge as well, because those people also go home and have families. And, you know, we, we are playing an important role there as employers. So yes. we talk about this a lot more day to day, and it's certainly through COVID and post-COVID become a much greater part of our conversation. But taking your journey, which began about eight years ago, I think you said, um, what were the things that you learned which really surprised you? Because most of us will have certain ideas, we will have heard certain things like mindfulness, be outside in nature, exercise, eat well, sleep well, all of the basics of life. But what did you learn? Because I know you went down the neuroscience route as well, that really surprised you, that we may not know. Yes, I'm not sure if you know it. I was uh, clearly ignorant in those days, (laughs) but there were three things that really stood out for me. A, I was not alone. It's very omnipresent, um, and uh, and uh, one out of two in one an exploratory study we found that one out of two think they can perform better at work if they were uh, less worried about making mistakes, uh, and then people spent very quickly a couple of hours uh, worrying about their um, uh, about being good enough, and you know, and a lot happens then. Uh, people hold back, don't contribute. Now, yeah, long story, right? That's number one. It's bigger a bigger problem before pandemic already than I thought. Two, uh, for me personally, um, the role of self-compassion. Huge unlock. We have 32 tools in the book, but this one for me personally was a huge unlock. So that surprised me. Brings me to the third one, uh, which brings it all together, is that this is not a soft topic. It's neuroscience. There is biology science. This is its normal human behavior. It's basically an adaptive challenge, right? So if you experience challenges uh, in uh, in what you do, then there are three elements that are re- responsible for that. The context in which you are at or in which you are, what you bring from your past uh, and what you've learned, and also how you physically feel. Um, and those three work together interactively. And that was a huge surprise. And actually, it gave me language to talk to the boardrooms and people that are actually a little bit scared of softer stuff um, to to enable them to open up and say, okay, if there's science behind it, I can listen to these interesting and sometimes funny tools uh, to, to help myself. And also I can actually allow myself to say that I also sometimes feel insecure. It's almost like, yeah, giving I- permission to people if you tell them it's science and it, there's nothing weird about it. Yeah, I can understand that some people might prefer to hear it from that point of view. So you've given us your top three takeaways. Give us a flavour of the other. Well, you said there were 32 tools in the book, so we we may not need to go through all of them, but just, you know, cycle us through a few of them. The ones that you think work for most people. Yes. And and I would want to say, Lisa, you know, I uh, invite people to buy the book, of course. Of course. All proceeds go to save the children. eh? There's nothing going to McKinsey or Jackie Brassie. It's all for a good cause. So (laughs) So just to underline that all proceeds proceeds of the book buying goes to save the children. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So uh, this book is based uh, on, it's evidence-based, it's based on a clinical uh, psychology approach called acceptance and commitment training, or therapy is another word, and it brings indeed those 32 tools are all divided over uh, six practices. Um, But if I step back from that, because we don't have enough time to go through all 32, I could also classify them in three boxes. The one boxes or, or layers, maybe, if, if that's a diff- better word. The one is maybe is, is really uh, your support system. How do you take care of yourself? 
um, which you you may think "Mm, that doesn't immediately impact how I feel during the day, but it's hugely important. And with that, I mean building, um, uh, you know, your foundations. Take care of yourself by sleeping well. You become more receptive to stress um, um, if you are tired. Um, And eat well, you know, uh, lots of refined sugars, uh, lots of uh, alcohol or whatever bad food it's not helping that may be fun every now and then but uh, in general take good care of yourself because there is this connection and, and in the book we talk also about the holistic connection it's not only about the brain of course the brain uh, is, re- is responsible for our whole body yeah? is uh, is in connection with the whole body but we also talk about the link between the gut and the brain stem and, and the importance of holistic care uh, exercise cardiovascular activity um, and sports of, and walking. So if in that box, I would say if you have to pick two, uh, no, three, eat well, sleep well and move. Movement, walking. Now, second layer is about setting yourself up for success during the day. Um, and you can start with your morning intention. You can look at your day ahead and say, you know, what's going on? What do I have on my uh, uh, calendar today, on my agenda? What are the toughest meetings? Can I visualize how I want to show up? How do I want to be as a person? Um, and uh, and that helps you also manage the curveballs that you may get during the day. Um, but there are also other things, for example, reflecting on what's important to you, your purpose, your values, what really matters. Because then it helps you to face difficult challenges and know what you need to decide because if you know what what is important to you it helps you to to find a direction so there's a a number of tools in that box and then what helps uh, for everyone there are two tools that um, if you have an SOS moment and you have a nervous breakdown I needed it this morning when I actually panicked a little bit (laughs) I didn't mention that but you're very calm for somebody who is in the wrong place this morning no stress at all well you know (laughs) One thing, uh, if you don't have anything else, learn how to breathe. I did think of all the people who ended up in the wrong place, you were the best equipped <laughs> mentally to deal with that. <laughs> you know, Lisa, for a moment I felt like an imposter. Oh gosh. <laughs> no, I was just thinking of all the people, you are the best one to be in this position. <laughs> Thank you, that's so kind. So two tools in the SOS box. <laughs> Uh, the breathing. Um, Andrew Huberman, a professor at Stanford, explains even an, a variation on breathing. So breathing from the belly is important. If you feel stressed, you often start breathing from the chest. If you, note, if you notice it, then you can intervene, right? You can move it down. Um, and he talks about the physiological side, which is a deep breath. You take a breath in and you take another quick breath after that. And then a long breath out through the mouth. So in through your nose and not a short other one and then out of the mouth. And I won't do it because it makes a lot of noise in this uh, microphone, I think. <laughs> the other one is the use of voice. Um, when we are stressed, and, and I would invite everybody to start noticing is if you feel stressed, notice what is happening to your voice. It may start crackling. It may also uh, go up a notch. If you become aware of that, try to to go uh, breathe from your belly and and try to find uh, a place of comfortable, lower sound, not too low, of course, because that becomes uh, also threatening, but calm it down and talk slowly. And you can do that in the middle of a conversation. Um, 
I, don't I think that's fascinating because I can imagine if you're hearing that, if somebody's talking, if, if, if I was the stressed person, somebody spoke to me in a calm way, it has a, a reflex as well. Um, or talking to a teenager, for instance, that's in my mind. <laughs> but the other thing, all of this, I didn't want to interrupt you again, but um, you're basically saying how to sing. And that is perhaps my self-care. Every, you know, um, the singing is all from the, the lower stomach. And always after I've sung, I feel better. However, conversely, if I am at all stressed or sick, the first thing to go is my throat. Yes, yes. And, um, and any point of stress hits me here first. Yeah. So it is all linked. The voice is linked. The larynx is linked to the, um, the vagus nerve as well. And that also has a connection with your parasympathetic nerve system. So that's exactly what I wanted to say. It calms me down using the voice techniques. And there are different voice techniques in the book as well. But it has an impact uh, on other people. Yeah, it, it, wonderful. Well, Jackie, thank you so much. And I encourage everybody to go out and buy this book, Authentic Confidence. All the proceeds goes to save the children. So uh, a, a wonderful Christmas stocking present there. Thank you. And of course, we will link to the McKinsey Health Institute as well, where all sorts of organisations, employees and employers, most especially, can get good feedback and help. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. The Lisa Burke Show. Now, Flavio, Flavio Gianotte, you're here to talk about fencing. And if I just look at a little bit of your CV, um, you come from a family of fencers, no less. And you are five times champion fencer of Luxembourg, fifth in the European Championships, uh, in the under 23s. And I can go on and on and on. You're, you're basically an excellent fencer and the best one in Luxembourg. So we're very, very happy for you to be joining us here. For those people who don't know what fencing is, I think most people know what fencing is, but give us, uh, well, I, I, I mean, we can even take a photo later with your, um, which, which one do you use? Because I know there's three types of... Uh, yeah, there are three weapons. Yes, yeah. uh, <laughs> oil and uh, sable. Yeah. I actually fence epi. I did fencing a little bit once in my past, so I have a, a little soft spot. It's great fun and much harder than it actually looks. So what got you into fencing, apart from your entire family being fencers? I mean, I started because of that. It's a huge family story. And um, that's how I started, basically. And then once I was in, I, I got this passion of fencing and that brought me on. And I, so I continued until I reached a certain level and uh, then there was no going back. I mean, <laughs> I was so into it that uh, I wanted to continue and become professional and um, try to do my best. And what does it mean to be a professional sportsman here in Luxembourg in a sport like fencing, which is not one of the more common sports? Um, for me, it means a lot. It means, firstly, uh, you represent your country out of Luxembourg. So it's that, that means a lot to me because Luxembourg has done a lot for me, for my family, for everyone. So um, represent them as good as possible. And um, yeah, just, I mean, trying to do your best, reach, reach the most, the highest possible level you can. Being professional is um, showing your sport to, to other people because it's not one of the most famous sports. How popular is it here in Luxembourg? Uh, actually, not popular at all. Oh. <laughs> but it's going to become more popular because I know that the um, the club that you belong to in the south of Luxembourg, yep. the name of the club is? Escrime Sud. Escrime Sud. And Escrime Sud allows uh, young people um, to join for three months for free. Yeah. yeah, yeah That's do, amazing. 
Yeah, it's really good because you can start uh, to see the sport, start to feel it. And once you're into it, you're aware that it's more complex than you think. And most people that start fencing, they don't stop ever again. And that's, by the way, for seven to 15 year olds, the uh, the offer for three months free fencing is for seven to 15 year olds in Escrime suit. Yes. And we have to say it's mostly not dangerous. No, it is not. It is not. You you have your full suit and um, all the weapons, they are controlled regularly and stuff. So except for some, uh, how do you call it, like... Uh, the yeah, the, the holes, the holes and the, the joints where you have to move. No, except for some blue, uh, how do you call veins? it? Veins? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you say it in English, when you got hit by something and it becomes blue after a day. Oh, bruise. Bruise, okay, <laughs> thanks. After... Except for some bruise, uh, nothing happens. <laughs> uh, although you did have one accident, but we don't need to go into that journey. We don't need to talk about that. So we can tell from your name, Flavio Gianotte, it has an Italian ring to it. Your family is from Torino. Yeah, they are. And indeed there you have taken the club to train because indeed your neighbour in Torino is a club fencer. Yeah, yeah, it, it is actually a quite funny story. I mean, my family is from Torino, so we still have a house back there. And uh, I was out walking uh, with the dog. And actually, I met the coach of the Italian national team. And I uh, just stopped uh, near him and I said, hey, hello, how are you? And he said, ah, listen, I, I know you from somewhere. Like, are you not the Luxembourgish fence? I said, yes. What are you doing here? So, yeah, I live here. And he was, uh, he just told me, yeah, you know, we have a fencing club not far from here. Just come over, fence with us. It would be great. So I went there and from that day on, uh, I started fencing as well for this Italian club. And he invited me for every Italian national um, camp. So um, it's great because, uh, as you said, Luxem in Luxembourg, you cannot fence with many people because it's not such a... Um, popular sport so I have to go in foreign countries to look for some uh, fencers and <laughs> some people of your them. level oh, that's just that that's more than coincidence I think that your neighbour in Torino happens to be the national coach for Italy <laughs> 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 that's sort of a, a sign from the universe or whatever you want to call it um, I want to actually talk to you a little bit about your mindset because we've had so much information from Jackie about how you think and being confident how important is confidence in the level of sport and we're talking about ultimately Olympic level sport here yeah I mean first of all what you were talking about was so interesting I was just sitting here and smiling because I can refer to everything she said because the mindset is is in the end what makes a difference I mean uh, I'm now in the top 100 best fencers of the world and in the end if you look at them we all know how to fence we are basically perfect in technique and the only difference is the mindset the only difference into this is self-confidence you have are you um, aware of what you're doing do you believe in the action you do or do you maybe doubt a little bit so in fencing we talk about one centimeter that makes a difference that can make or break you and uh, yeah it's and so with this mindset do you think those top 100 fencers in the world were born with that strength of confidence in their mind or have you and these people that you know in the top 100 developed it? Um, I think you get born with it in, to a certain level because otherwise you cannot join this, let's say, top 100. But once you're into it, you can improve it. And I think it's a topic that we don't um, talk about uh, often enough, the mental health uh, for sportsmen or all this mental preparation, because in the end, it is that what brings you to the, to the highest uh, podium step. Not only to 
win, but also the pressure that you're under at that level must be intense. Yeah, it, it is. And it became much uh, harder. Like this pressure became much more um, the day I became a professional fencer, like you said. So it was not just having fun and doing your sport, but now it, you have to deliver. And if you don't deliver, you lose your contracts, you lose your sponsors. You're not a professional fencer anymore. And that's it's a lot of pressure that you have to cope with. And um, the first year was... Um, really great because i mean you achieved your goal you're on, on the flow like she said and then the second year you become you, you start to realize what just happened it uh, you have to deliver now and that's when everything uh, for me went down a little bit and i had to train mentally uh, i wrote a lot uh, about it i saw some people some uh, mental coaching to to improve this and yeah now it starts to get better but uh, it's up and ups and down like in life What techniques helped you the most or continue to help you? Um, be aware of what you're capable of doing. Um, accept what you are, accept what you do. I think that's uh, the self-compassion that Jackie was speaking yeah, about. Yeah, we, we, we talked about it just before the show. She said, how do you prepare for, for tournaments? I said, just accept, that, accept the losing, accept that you can lose. And once you accept that, You go into you go into the match with a different mindset. Well, that's because the stoic philosophy. Anymore. Yeah, the stoic philosophy is to kind of mentally prepare for the worst thing that can possibly happen, and then then you're fine. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's not um, prepare for the worst because, in my opinion, if you prepare for the accept worst, accept the worst. Focused, exactly. You accept, accept the worst. Just accept that not everything can go as you planned it. Like call it faith, call it uh, like you want, but sometimes you do everything perfect, and in the last moment. It just doesn't happen. It, it just wasn't meant to be now. And the day you accept that, it opens your mind to the possibilities that can be there because then you accept as well that maybe it's your faith now to win. Mm -hmm. And I suppose for elite sports men and women, one of the toughest things of all is injury and how you deal with injury mentally because it's almost inevitable when you're training so hard you're you're literally on that balance between training too much and and not enough but you absolutely don't want to get injured so what do you do to cope when you are injured mentally um focus on on the good things focus on the small steps be happy about every small step you you do and you achieve you know when when you get on a level as i am now You're not aware that you're at this level, but there are so many people who would love to be there. So enjoy every moment there. It, it doesn't mean that you have to be, I mean, you have to be happy, but don't be, how do you say it? Uh, a difficult word. It's not my language, English. En, so en français. Um, or, or any other language. Don't, be, don't be satisfied. That's the word I was looking for. Be happy about your place where you are, but don't be satisfied with what you achieved and what you do. Because in my opinion, satisfaction means that you have enough. And continuing and becoming better, a better person, a better fence, a better everything, just means continue working and not being satisfied, but always try to move on. You know, the, for me personally, the pain of losing lasts much longer than the joy of winning. And that's what keeps me going. I think that's actually a very human reaction. And I remember reading once, uh, people need many more times, like five times more time, five times more positive information sent to them. I mean, you probably have the facts at hand um, to overlay 
something negative said by some person in a relationship you have to have five times more positives than negatives is that right something like this yeah it's around that it's it's four or five times uh, but you know if you have the skills to to deal with it anyway then you you don't need it uh, yeah and the word that that came up and, and i heard flavia and thank you i'm so inspired by listening to your story i definitely want to have another conversation with flavia <laughs> oh for sure <laughs> um is is also the uh, gratitude but also um you know knowing uh, being grounded in your in your purpose why you do it why do you do what you do and being grateful for what you've already achieved we yeah. tend to forget that we do because we're always pushing on what today's list of jobs to do and what's not done and we don't actually have a lot of time sometimes to step back and to enjoy what we do the other part of a professional sports man woman's life <laughs> <laughs> is the length of it How long can you be a professional fencer? I'm quite um, lucky that fencing is a sport where you reach your highest level um, at around 32 years old. So it's quite old because you need a lot of... <laughs> it's quite, well, old. quite old for sportsmen. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what age did he say? 32. 32. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, can, you can reach it early. I mean, uh, let's look back at the last Olympic Games. I mean, in 2016. The Olympic champion was 20 years old and the vice Olympic champion, so the one who became second, was 42 years old. That's wonderful. So, so it's a sport that really lasts through decades, which is very uncommon, in fact, when it comes to elite sports. Exactly. And, and that's what this makes this sport so, so nice and so beautiful to me, because once you're young, you're fast, you have all this energy. But once you grow older, you have the um, um, experience. The experience. And um, yeah, th that reminds me actually of something that my coach always says is the young guy runs fast, but the old man knows the way. Oh, that's a beautiful phrase. What a lovely phrase to end on. The young guy runs fast and the older person knows the way. Well, with your wonderful expertise, I mean, you sound older than your young years. <laughs> I'm really interested, though, in one thing, which is that um, I, I know you, you're in the moment, and but you are striving for perfection yeah. and you're in a sport where the presumably perfection counts and some kind of killer instinct counts. So how do you, how do you, I mean, it is, it, it is I know it's a combat, but how, how do you balance the two then? Uh, it is really difficult. And I'm Italian, so I have this ho ho yeah. <laughs> hot blood. Hot blood. So uh, you want to do a perfect job, like perfect technique. But on the other side, this aggression, like you just did a mistake and you want to do better now. So when I was young, I used this used to stop me from doing good results. And now with with the time, I I learned to cope with it and just calm down. And like like she said, just breathe in, breathe out, be back in the moment, and try to forget what just happened. Don't don't forget the the, the positive sides, but try to forget the negative sides and just concentrate on what is coming now. And this is something that helped me in my life as well. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. We've learned so much this morning. I feel like I'm floating into the weekend it, it, on a different level. I can never quite make it's enough true. time. Yeah. I feel the same. <laughs> you've, you've given us so much inspiration. I'm so grateful. Sasha, as always, so grateful to you for being with us week Thank in, you. week out with a, your absolute encyclopedic knowledge of what's gone on in the world with, with a Luxembourg-centred focus as well. Jackie, an honour to have you with us and to learn all about what you've been through and the amazing 
work that you've done coming out of your own personal experience to help so many people who didn't have the voice that you had to speak about it. And Flavia, well, we're all going to log on to Eskrim Sud and also your Instagram page and follow your success. And you're going to have to come back in and tell us about your progress towards the Olympics because we'll be all rooting for you. Thanks. And for those who want to see fencing, we have a huge international tournament on 25th of this month, so of November. Uh, in the city in Limpatsberg, where there are some international fences as well. I will be fencing as well there. So for those who are interested to see what it is or what it looks like, you can join. It's free entry. And uh, I'll be happy to talk to everyone who is interested in this sport. So there we go. An open invitation for the wonderful tournament, November 26th, 27th, bringing international fencers to Luxembourg. Thank you all so much for being with us. Lisa Burke on RTL Today Radio.